And uh, if you have a Bible, turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, if you don't have one, it'll be coming up on these screens. So don't worry about that. And uh, just again, to repeat, if you don't know me, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here. I'll be speaking on this passage that Liz read for us. So we're starting a new sermon series at King's Church. It's just disappeared. Oh, it's come back. The Ten Commandments, the Christian way of living. And my title today is How to Live. How to Live. And we're planning to study the Ten Commandments for the next ten weeks. And I guess immediately some people might be thinking, why on earth would you do that? In this day and age, why would you go through the Ten Commandments? Is it a tactical blunder? I wonder what your impression of the Ten Commandments is, if you've heard of them. A lot of people don't know them now. Very few people can name them all. Even fewer people understand how they work. British comedian Ricky Gervais wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal some years ago called An Atheist Easter Message. He's a, a, a proclaimed atheist. And Gervais confidently said that he had kept all ten commandments all his life. Now, I don't know Ricky Gervais, but I do know this. Such a claim reveals a total misunderstanding of how these commandments, these guidelines, these instructions work. But what about you? I wonder what would your impression of the ten commandments be? Oh, there it is. This is a famous movie. The older members of the congregation will remember Charlton Heston uh, in his fa world-famous role of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt and going and getting the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. And here he is. It, I mean, it's very intense, isn't it? Uh, it's quite forbidding. And maybe that's your imp impression of what God's law means. It's quite forbidding, it's quite stern, you don't want anything to do with it. Now in our culture, the idea of a commandment is seen as almost entirely negative. Surely anything that places limits on me, any kind of moral instruction handed down for me from above, surely we think anything like that must by its nature be crushing, negative, life-denying a shackle to bind me with. And that's how people tend to think. And Christians can sometimes think like that too. But just listen to some voices from the Bible. These are from the book of Psalms. Oh, how I love your law. I think about it all day long. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, than much pure gold. Sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The Bible describes the person who believes in God as someone whose delight is in the law of the Lord. How can they say that? How can they think like that? Is this just an Old Testament thing? Something from the past, you know. Actually, no. Jesus himself says this of the law of God. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In John's gospel, Jesus says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he or she is the one who loves me. If you keep my commandments, you will stay in my love. So it turns out that God's commandments are actually really valuable for us now. They are the way to live. And here's the main point of this message. And if you only get one thing from today, this is the thing. This is the Ten Commandments are showing us how to live when you've been saved. How to live when you've been saved. And we see this in three important movements that happen. Three movements from one place to another place. And that's what I want to spend the rest of my time talking about. Is going from slavery to freedom. Going from Pharaoh, Egyptian king, to Yahweh, that's God. Going from self to Jesus. Three movements. And this is what the Ten Commandments is all about. Firstly, from slavery to freedom. These commandments don't appear in a vacuum. There's a relationship context. It's a bit like a marriage. Now, I've been to a few weddings this summer. And every time, the thing that moves me most is the vows. Seeing a young couple exchanging solemn vows. It's always moving. All that I am, I share with you. All that I have, I give to you. During our wedding, my wife actually started laughing at that point. And my dad, who was marrying us, said, what's going on? It turned out my wife was thinking, all that I have is student loans. And I'm giving it to you. And you have a flat. You're going to share that with me. (laughs) You know, these young people, they promise to stick together from this time forth in sickness and in health and all the rest of it, to have and to hold. Now, those vows are pretty intense, aren't they? Pretty intense. But if you're already in a relationship with someone and you love them, they are the most natural thing in the world. So there is a background here of relationship between God's people, the Israelites, and God himself. A love relationship. And it's a story of a history of slavery to freedom. They'd gone down to Egypt centuries before as an extended family of 70 people. Uncles, aunts, cousins, brothers, sisters. And they'd all gone down to escape famine from where they were living. And one family member was already living in Egypt. His name was Joseph. And he was uh, high up in the government. He was like the chief executive of Egypt. Although he was an immigrant, he'd done really well. He secured good treatment for his family. And they settled in a nice area. And they lived there for about 400 years. And there they grew in number. They settled. They built lives. They became part of the community. Although they were ethnically distinct... And they were known as the Hebrews, the Hebrews. But then a new king came to power, and kings in that place were were known as Pharaoh. That's their title for a king. And this king didn't remember Joseph, the one who'd helped them. And he said, look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come on, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us. And leave the country. So he put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built store cities as slaves. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread them and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. You getting the picture? 
Now, not only did they progressively oppress the population, they actually started population control. This is absolutely brutal. The government told the midwives to attend every birth, and if the baby was a boy, to kill him there and then. Infanticide. Girls could, be, could live because they could be assimilated and used for slave labor, but they started to cull the boys. They aimed to break the people so that they no longer even existed. Can you imagine such a thing? Forced labor, violence, racial discrimination, infanticide. One ethnic group has that much power over another one. Can you imagine that? Of course you can. We know the 20th century. We've seen enough history to know this wasn't the last time. These Hebrew slaves had their dignity stripped away. They were crushed. They were so useful to their masters that as free labor, the Egyptians would never, ever let them go. Now that is slavery. But I want to ask, what is so bad about slavery? And you think that seems like a silly question. But just think, what is it that makes slavery so awful? I want to suggest the real horror of slavery is found in three things. These things were exposed by George Orwell in his novel 1984 and in many studies of 20th century governments who had total rule over their population. Here are three things that show the real horror of slavery. The loss of control, confinement, and crushing. Loss of control. Imagine that you were going home today and you, you met some rough types and they beat you up. Now that would be bad enough, wouldn't it? But imagine getting beaten up in a place where there is absolutely no recourse for justice for you because of your race. A free person can take a beating, but if you take away someone's freedom, if they have no control over, if they have no access to justice, you have robbed them of something infinitely precious. Slavery is an experience of being out of control of your own life. Someone else has a grip on you. Secondly, confinement. You know, it would be bad enough to be enslaved for a period of time. You know, if you were a slave for five years, but you knew that at the end of it you were going to be free. But what if you could never get out? What about if the loss of control was just permanent? That would be awful beyond description because that takes away the human spirit. You would lose all hope. You could never get out. You would never see a way out. Confined and therefore crushed. The third aspect of slavery is the crushing. It's not just bad treatment, it is dehumanizing treatment. It takes away all dignity and freedom. It diminishes a person. They cannot flourish. It attacks their very humanity. You see, the Israelites were slaves. They had this bitter experience of these things, loss of control, confinement, crushing. Even when God raised up a leader from their own people, Moses, Pharaoh refused to let them go. God gave warning. He sent plagues on Egypt. Pharaoh would not relax his grip. They were well and truly enslaved. And then, at last, they were set free. God sent one last plague. He stretched out his hand. The tenth plague, the most awful one of all, the death of the firstborn. And the Israelites were spared from that because of the blood of a lamb. They had to kill a lamb. That was to be their evening meal. They ate it. But they put the blood across their doorposts and on the lintels. And wherever those doors were, death passed over. They were freed 
the lamb had died in their place. But death visited every other household in Egypt. And finally, they let them go. And as they left the country in a hurry, the Egyptians gave them gold and silver and jewels and back payment for all those years. And a lot of people saw how great God was, and they came out too, the mixed multitude. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty, free at last! On the road to their own home, God was giving them a land of their own. What a road trip that must have been at the start. Feeling the wind blowing through your hair and knowing you never had to go back to mixing bricks and toiling again. Or if you did, it would be to build your own house. Now with that background in mind, slavery to freedom, I want to ask this question. It's quite simple, but it's very profound. When were they given the Ten Commandments? When were they given the Ten Commandments? And the answer is they were given them after they were set free. They were given the Ten Commandments after they were saved, after God had rescued them. They were not given the Ten Commandments in Egypt as a kind of test. If you obey this, I'll set you free. They didn't earn their way out of Egypt by obedience to God. God rescued them, and we already thought about this. He says, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This wonderful image of power, the eagle, the king of the birds, but also tenderness. It's teaching his young to fly and leave the nest. The tender love of the mother bird. I brought you. The eagle won't drop the, the fledgling, but carry it until it learns to fly. In other words, God's relationship with his people was one of grace. Grace is kindness that you don't deserve. It's mercy that you didn't earn. Grace is love and mercy and kindness shown to someone who was actually an enemy. That's what God did for them. They weren't specially deserving. They weren't nicer than everyone else in the ancient world. Later Old Testament shows us they could be just as cruel and wicked as the Egyptians. They didn't earn God's rescue. They weren't lovers of God. They were actually deeply twisted in the religions of the Egyptians. They quickly defaulted to making a calf to worship. They didn't earn it. God's grace was freely given. And so the Ten Commandments are given not to save them, but to show you how to live. This is how you stay free. God brings them from slavery to freedom. How do we stay free? By living along these lines, these instructions. This is how to live a life of dignity, a good life. And Exodus continued, If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, says the Lord. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God had brought them into this special relationship with him. Set them free. Now he's going to show them how to stay free, how to live as free people. And that's one very vital reason for us to study these words, this term, because we want to live free too. But before we get to that, we need to look at the nature of freedom a little bit more deeply. And the second movement that I mentioned uh, explains the fact that freedom is a change of king. I think it's coming up here. So we've gone from slavery to freedom, but we've also gone from Pharaoh, he's the Egyptian king, to Yahweh. Now, you may not have ever seen that word before, and uh, it's not even printed in our Bible. If you've got a Bible, look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. It says this. It's right there, actually. And God spoke all these words. 
I am the Lord your God. Now you see that word Lord there. It's in a kind of capital letters. Uh, but the, the Lord is a big capital and the others are small capitals. And what this word means is actually the name of God, Yahweh. God speaks all these words to his people. And he identifies himself as I am Yahweh, your God. Now, this name is just very important. So if you're zoning, do come back. If this name Yahweh means, it means I am who I am. I will be who I will be. That's how God identifies himself. Now, all the other gods in the rest of that world were the God of this or that. The God of A, the God of B, the God of C. So there was the sun god. The sun is a god. That's called Ra. And there was the frog goddess, Heket. That's a god of fertility, because frogs, when they get going, are very fertile. There were bull gods that were like bulls, one called Apis. It was kind of an, uh, a mediator between humans and a bigger god. There are loads and loads of gods all over the place. And they're all god of something. The river Nile was a god. And all the gods of the ancient world were focused on some particular domain or realm. But the God of Israel is totally different. And he introduces himself as, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. There is no limit on him. He just is. And he needs no further qualification. So if he is, I am who I am, what does that mean about all the other gods? If he is the God who is, then they are the God who isn't. <laughs> you see, this is, name is a claim. With one name, he sweeps away all the competition. And so those plagues that fell on Egypt were not random. They are a demonstration that the true God blows away all the pretenders to the throne. You think there's a frog God? Okay, here's a plague of frogs. Ribbit. How do you like them now? So God introduces and identifies himself with this special, very precious, most revered name. And actually, the reason why we don't print it in our Bibles is out of respect to the Jewish people. It, this name was held in such high regard by later Jews that they would never, ever even speak it. And when rabbis read the Bible today, they substitute, whenever they come to the word Yahweh, they substitute the word Lord. Should we say it? I think so, because it's given to us. He told us his name, a precious name that reminds us of the awesome God who is. He is the one who has rescued us. He is unique. He is who he is. So there's a move here from the, king, the, the human king, oppressive, self-serving, ruthless, to the great king, Yahweh, the living God, who is not self-serving but self-giving. Now, the last hundred years or so have seen huge advances in our understanding of this time period. Archaeologists have dug up huge parts of the Near East and they've found loads and loads of things that make our understanding of that culture and time and the languages that were spoken immensely greater than we've known for hundreds of years. And one of the most exciting things that's been found is Hittite Treaty Covenants. Yeah, it's exciting. 
I know none of you believe me. Hittites, these were people who lived at the same time as the Israelites. Everybody was an ite in those days. And the Hittites wrote down these covenant, these treaties between one king and another king. And we've found dozens of them. And here's the thing. I know you don't think the words Hittite treaty and exciting are a natural pairing in your mind. But I want to persuade you that it is worth getting excited about because they've discovered that there's a legal form for a relationship between a king and another king and his people and that the Ten Commandments are in this exact form. So the way God is communicating to his people is as a great king and and bringing them into a binding relationship with him that's called a covenant. Now these, these documents have six parts. The first one identifies who's giving the covenant and who's receiving it. And have a look at uh, chapter 20, verse 2. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So there he is. He's identifying who he is. Then there's a prologue. It reminds uh, people of the, the relationship between the king and the people, what he's done for them. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery. And then there's a list of things they should do, instructions, obligations. And we have this here, you shan't make for yourself an image, you shan't use the name of your Lord your God in vain, remember the Sabbath day. There's four commandments that relate to how we relate to God, and there's six commandments that relate to how we relate to each other. So four between us and God, six between each other. And these form a code, a boiled down Uh, essence of what it means to live this free life is to love God and love your neighbor. It's all about love. Now some of you are probably thinking, well this, all right, but this does seem quite irrelevant to my life here in South London in 2023. Actually, this is revolutionary if you understand it. Because here's the real world cash value. By structuring the relationship like this, God is showing people how to relate to him. He does it in terms they can understand from their cultural background and he transforms those terms. God is showing them that he's a great king and they are his people. Now that's a form they can understand. And Moses, their leader, has been highly educated in Egypt. He knows how to put it down in writing when God tells him. God is showing people how to relate to him. And he's doing it in terms they can understand from their own culture. And what that means for us, friends, is that we are to relate to God as the great king. And that's why I love the name of our church. King's Church. God isn't your buddy, although he calls himself a friend. God isn't your therapist who you just go to when you have certain needs. God isn't Father Christmas. He also isn't a distant force somewhere. You know, Star Wars kind of force. God is personal. He's not an angry granddad. He's a great king. And he loves his people and brings them into relationship with him. So this is what's going on in the Ten Commandments. We're moving from one king to another one. But this freedom is not the absence of all boundaries. We in the modern Western world tend to think of freedom as, a, as having no boundaries. You know, I'm free if I've got nothing to do and no constraints. 
That is not how the Bible understands freedom. In the Bible, the biblical view, we all serve the thing that we worship and we become like it. Let me give an example. If you worship money, you will serve it. It will govern your actions and your thoughts, your decisions, your dreams. Money will shape your character. It will shape who you are. It will be the grid through which you evaluate people, decisions, and determine value. If money is your God, it's got you. If you worship success, you will serve it. Success will govern your choices, how you spend your time, how you use your emotional energy, how you treat family and friends. You come alive if you, if you achieve and you die when you fail. Your God is success and it shapes you. You see, we may think we are free, but in fact, none of us are. We're all in service to something. We're all worshippers, but we don't often realize what we're really worshipping. And the Ten Commandments are part of a relationship with the great king. And this is what they're saying. The God, the great king, has rescued you. He saved you. You owe him your very life. You used to serve Pharaoh. And remember what that was like. Your life was bitter and harsh. He took your life away from you. And now you belong to Yahweh and he set you free. So if you want to live free, serve the great king. And this is how to live. See how it works? It means that to be a believer, a follower of God, is to relate to God as my king, my Lord, on his terms, not mine. As the creator, his terms will always be for my good because he made me and knows me. Keeping his law will be the best thing for me. It will make me flourish following the manufacturer's guidelines. If you see a fish in the water, how it glides and swims, See that same fish on the riverbank, flipping, choking, dying. See a bird in the air, how it soars and glides. See that same bird fly into the water, thrashing, twisting, drowning. In one environment, they're free. In the other, they're dying. And we human beings need to know the environment we were made for. What are the laws for us? What is the way for us to swim, to glide, to soar? What are we made for? We're made for the God who loves us and calls us to himself. And so he shows us how to live in these 10 words. So we've gone from slavery to freedom. We've gone from Pharaoh to Yahweh. And thirdly, and, for, and more briefly, we're going, we are going from self to Jesus. This third movement comes to us because although we've spent most of our time in the mor this morning on the Old Testament, we are not interested in a mere history lesson. These Ten Commandments are not just history. They are living words. They are alive. They speak to us. They are sharp and piercing. And so as we go through them, we're going to find that every one of the commandments has a negative side and a really positive side. You might not believe me, but this is what we're going to find. I promise. They're going to show us how they apply to us right here and now. Every week we will find how relevant they are. How do our lives connect, though, with the experience of the Israelites three and a half thousand years ago? The answer is, let me suggest, in the experience of slavery. 
Now, I don't think anyone here has been a literal slave. It's possible, but I, I don't know of it. But remember that the essence of slavery that we talked about, loss of control, confinement, being crushed. I think you've experienced that. So if you've got loss of control, something else controls your life. If it's money, you're never free. You never have enough. You can't count on it. And you don't, it won't help you with all the really bad problems of life. You get cancer, money doesn't help you, really. The most significant person in your life betrays you, money doesn't really help you. You get heartbroken, money doesn't help that much. So following it and worshipping it is a false god. And it, it lose, you lose control. You become, you become controlled by money. Success. Promises that you will be significant, but you're never actually going to be big enough. There's always someone who's winning more. You're so aware of your own insecurity and you feel like a pretender. Even when you succeed, you wonder if you're really a fake. If you put somebody else, a relationship with somebody else, a significant relationship, if that becomes the be-all and end-all of your life, you're in service to them, you've lost control. If they leave you, you're broken. You see, we too have many, many gods. Now, they're not frogs, bulls, or the sun, but they are still created things, things that were made for our good. But when we let them be our God, they break us. And so we need to rediscover the one true God, Yahweh, our creator. Our gods will confine us, limit us, make us smaller and smaller, crush you in the end. But the true God makes you bigger and bigger and bigger the more you walk with him. Any other relationship cannot bear the full weight of your humanity. You were made for someone bigger. What is great enough to satisfy the human heart. Only a relationship with our maker, the one who is. How can we enter into such a relationship? By the blood of a lamb. And I'm not now talking about a young sheep. I'm talking about the one and only sacrifice for our sins, Jesus Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's how we too come into a relationship with our Lord and King. So, I hope you'll come back in the next 10 weeks and we'll discover more of these commandments together. Let's pray. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all peoples you will be my treasured possession. What a thing for us, little people that we are, to be called your treasured possession, Lord. What a thing for us who've lived so much of life without really thinking of you and paying you attention and certainly not honoring you. What a thing for us to be picked up by you and carried on eagles' wings. Thank you, Lord that you love us and thank you that you sent Jesus to be our lamb. Amen.